the sixth saying of Jesus on the cross is it is finished. For me personally, this is the most meaningful saying of Jesus on the cross. It is said with both a sense of accomplishment and resignation. The punishment is over. The sacrifice is complete. Everything necessary is finished. There is nothing more needed to atone for our sin. It reminds me of the artist's dilemma. When does a painter know that the painting is done? That not one single brush stroke, not one touch-up is needed. Now it is finished. Or the sculptor, how does the sculptor know that nothing else must be chipped away or sanded down? That here, yes, this is what I came to do. Or the composer, knowing that every single note is in place in the symphony and not one thing needs to be changed. It is finished. How do you know it is finished? How do you know it doesn't need just a little bit extra? The same can go for our sins. How can we ever feel like we have done enough to fully atone for our sins unless someone tells us it is finished? Jesus tells us this. He tells us that all that is necessary to atone for our sins is complete. It is finished. Do not add a brush stroke to the masterpiece that Jesus has painted. It is finished and it is enough. And so tonight as we open to the Gospel of Mark chapter 15, we will see what it is Jesus has finished, what the masterpiece is that Christ has painted for us. So I'm going to open up to Mark 15 in the Gospel of Mark, and I'll be reading verses 21 through 41 as we look to Jesus' experience on the cross. That's Mark 15, 21 through 41. Hear the word of the Lord. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, 
put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks that you do speak to us and that you have given us this powerful, spirit-filled word. It is inspired and it is for us, O God. And so use your word this evening. May it go forth in truth that we would hear it, that our hearts and minds would be open to receive it, what you are saying to us tonight on this Good Friday, and that you would bless us through it, drawing us close to you, mourning and repenting of our sins and longing after holiness because of what Christ has done for us. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look to the cross and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we see he has done so much, and in many different ways it can be seen, but what Mark especially shows us is that Jesus experienced separation from the Father on the cross so that we would have access to God. In fact, that all people would have that access available to them. And so tonight I want us to look at his agony, his atonement, and the access that he provides for us. This passage shows us the agony of Jesus on the cross. Mark does not go into great detail about every little thing that happened to Jesus like you would see in a film like The Passion of the Christ, but the details he does provide point to the agony of Jesus. He's clearly in pain. He had been scourged. He had been beaten by the Roman guards. We see that. He is unable to carry the cross beam, and he must receive help from someone who is passing by. Crucifixion victims were often asked to carry the cross beam up to the place where they were crucified, and Jesus did not have the strength to do it. He was weak and he was in pain. Despite that deep pain, he refused the wine mixed with myrrh, most likely a kind of numbing agent that would ease his pain on the cross. He said no. He was fully aware intact of all his senses as he was on the cross. But it wasn't just physical pain that Jesus felt. Many people mocked him and hurled insults at him on the cross. People laughed at Jesus, inviting him to simply come down from the cross and save himself. The religious leaders who had condemned him for saying he was the Christ now were mockingly saying, O Christ, come down that we may believe that it is true. All around him, people hated him. The Roman soldiers who kept guard at the cross were gambling for his garments. Everyone hated him there, it seemed. Yet as terrible as that physical pain and that mockery was, the worst pain that Jesus felt on the cross was the separation from his father. 
He had had a perfect relationship with the Father from before the world began. They had been eternally together in a perfect Father and Son relationship. And on the cross, that relationship was broken. The Father was nowhere to be found for Jesus. He cries out for God, and there is no answer. Jesus experiences the ultimate punishment for sin. It is separation from God. It's what Adam and Eve received in the garden. It wasn't just that they sinned, but that they must be cast out of the garden, never to walk and be among God again. Jesus was separated from God on the cross. The pain of the whip, the nails, the crown of thorns was nothing compared to the abandonment that Jesus felt. We know it must have been significant pain because twice Mark describes Jesus as crying out in a loud voice. Crucifixion was meant to slowly drain the life of victims, and yet Jesus, before he dies, summons up the emotions to shout loudly. He is in agony. He is alone. The separation that Jesus experienced on the cross was meant for sinners like us. He was separated from God because of our sins, our greed, our pride, our lust, our anger, our self-righteousness, our gossip, our thankless hearts. That all of our sins from the greatest to the least deserve separation from God. And so on Good Friday, while we are sad about what has happened to Jesus Christ, the sadness that we are meant to feel is sadness for our sins. Our mourning is for our sins because they sent Jesus to the cross. Good Friday reminds us of our sinfulness, how it still clings to us, how it should grieve us, and how it hurts others. We remember that Jesus had to take our place to make atonement for those sins. The word atonement is a Bible word that we find, and it's used to describe how God reconciles sinners to himself. It's how God remedies separation from him that is caused by sin. Now, under the Old Testament, this was done through animal sacrifices. Sin deserved death, but God allowed the Jews to use animals as substitutes for their sacrifices. These innocent animals were slaughtered before the tabernacle or temple and their blood would make atonement for the sins of his people. We see these laws in Leviticus. And it is what God's people did until the time of Jesus. But on the cross, Christ is making a new way for us to be reconciled to God. A new way to find atonement. We see this in the unusual mention of the temple curtain being torn. The focus of the entire passage is on Jesus and those around him at the cross. In fact, the end of verse 37 talks about Jesus breathing his last. And then verse 39 picks up again with the centurion seeing he breathed his last. And yet verse 38 is stuck in there. It is a very quick change of focus from Golgotha where he was crucified to the temple. And it says that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, when we're dealing with the Son of God dying, why are we concerned about a divine drapery in the temple? This curtain of the temple is what separated God from his people. 
It functioned like a giant door or a wall to keep people out from the most holy place where God's presence dwelt. Behind the curtain was where God made himself present. And only the high priest could enter that place, and he could only do so once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the people's sins. And yet Mark records that at the moment Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is no accident. Keep in mind that this curtain is probably 60 or 70 feet tall, significantly larger than that curtain up there. This curtain is also very thick. It was made of five to ten heavy layers of fabric put together. It was a very solid curtain. It was not something that would tear easily, especially from top to bottom. It is a highly symbolic moment in history. It is a supernatural tearing of the temple curtain, a sign of God's judgment on the temple and its religious leaders who rejected his son. It is God's way of saying the temple is over and done with. People had mocked Jesus saying, you cannot destroy the temple. And yet at the very moment he died, the temple was brought to an end. Jesus' death had made it irrelevant. A new way had been created, an atonement, not from the blood of animals, but from Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews picks up on this a lot. We see in chapter 9, verse 12, the author writes, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is greater than any animal. Instead of providing a temporary atonement that would need to be repeated like those animal sacrifices, Jesus' death was once for all. Never to be repeated. It secures an eternal redemption. In other words, it is finished. It was done. Another sacrifice would never be needed. In the death of Jesus, God provided a new way for us to be reconciled to him. You see, like people in the Old Testament, we could never be good enough to enter God's presence on our own. There would have to be a blood sacrifice. But instead of us gathering together here or in Jerusalem to sacrifice our animals, we reflect on the very Son of God who became a sacrifice for us. But who who gets this? The temple has been opened, previously unavailable to anyone but the high priest. It signals that there is some kind of access, that this atonement is available to more people than before. We see this from the passage. The people you might expect to benefit from Jesus' death and his sacrifice are not present, or they're not acting very well. Jesus' disciples are nowhere to be found. They're not mentioned by Mark at all. They had run away. The religious leaders, the most holy people in the land, were mocking Jesus. Well, certainly they are not benefiting from this. Who is Jesus helping? Who has the curtain been torn for? Well, as we look at our passage, we see that Mark is including many historical details and pointing us to a bunch of nobodies. We first read about Simon of Cyrene. 
He was enlisted to help Jesus carry the crossbeam. Now, Cyrene is in modern-day Libya, in Africa, away from Judea. He was a foreigner, and though he may have moved to Jerusalem or have been visiting, he was an outsider. But he still ends up helping Jesus, whether he wanted to or not. And it appears that Jesus made quite the impression on Simon. We learn three things about Simon. His name, where he comes from, and the names of his children. Now, I'm sure Alexander and Rufus are great people, but they don't need to be in this story. It doesn't matter whatsoever. You can take their names out, and it doesn't matter at all unless... Unless 20 or 30 years later, when Mark is writing this, Alexander and Rufus are people in the church. People who were witnesses of the crucifixion. People who knew about Jesus Christ being crucified. It is a kind of footnote in Mark's story saying to his readers, if you are curious whether or not this happened, ask Alexander, ask Rufus. They were there. A second nobody we meet is the Roman centurion in verse 39. He would have been a lower-level soldier positioned at the crosses where the victims were crucified, and his job was just to make sure that they died, and people generally left them alone. He'd probably done it many times before. He knew what to expect. He had seen death before as a soldier. But something was different about Jesus. He died differently from all the others, and we see that from the centurion exclaiming, Truly this man was the Son of God. Though he did not see any miracles or hear any of Jesus' teaching, he could tell from the nature of his death that this Jesus was someone special. Yet the centurion is just a nobody. At the end of the passage, we read about some women who were watching the crucifixion from a distance. Another kind of group of nobodies. We knew that the group of Jesus' followers was bigger than just the 12 disciples, but this is the first time we read about women being a part of that group. You see, women were lesser citizens in that day. Their testimony was not admitted in court. They were second class. And yet here, Mark is recording them by name, saying they were there. When the disciples scattered, the women stuck around. They would not abandon Jesus. By including these three nobodies, Simon, the centurion, and these women, Mark is not only being historical, including who was there as footnotes, he is making a point that the Jesus movement has evolved. During his ministry, Jesus worked almost exclusively among the Jewish people, and yet here we see his death is not just for the Jewish people. It is for all people. See, before the curtain was torn, the only people that could ever enter into that curtain were Jewish men who were the high priests. And yet here we meet a foreigner, a Gentile, and a group of women people who would benefit from this tearing of the curtain. This new way that Jesus had made was now open to all. Jesus includes outsiders, those who are far away. The hierarchy of the temple had been destroyed, and all can have access to God through Christ. 
No matter your history, no matter your sins, no matter your guilt or shame, Jesus' blood can make the foulest clean. No matter how unworthy you feel, no matter how much wrong you've done, no matter what any other people may say, Jesus has been made a way for you through the cross. He, w- he was separated from God so that you might be reconciled to God through him. And he has done it. It is finished. All that is left is to believe, to trust that Christ has done it, that he has reconciled us to God, that nothing we can do can atone for our sins. Nothing we can do was ever good enough to earn salvation. It is what he has done. And so having been saved, we live according to his word, knowing that whenever we sin, we return to the cross, the once for all sacrifice for our sins. So tonight, whether you believe in Jesus Christ or you're hearing about him for the first time or you're not really sure, we take time to remember his sacrifice that all people come to the same place for forgiveness and for salvation, and that is to the cross. Tonight we will take time to place our sins on the cross. It is a way to remember that instead of our good works or religious rituals, we need to bring our sins to Jesus Christ. We bring them to him knowing he alone can forgive us of our sins. And so as a way tonight to help us remember that he alone forgives us of our sins, we'll be nailing the hands that we have been given, the paper hands that we have been given, to the cross. And so I'll give you a few moments if you want to write something on the hand, on the red side, and we'll nail the red sides down onto the cross. A sin, something you struggle with, just your name, or leave it blank if you feel uncomfortable doing any of that. And you can take your time coming forward. There are hammers and nails provided to nail the hands to the cross. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son and his atonement that he has provided. That though our sins deserve complete and total separation from you in death, O Lord, Christ has made it possible through his death to be reconciled to you. And so tonight, Lord, help us to mourn our sin, to repent and to lay them on the cross, knowing that you alone can provide forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, if you would take a few moments and whenever you have something written, um, we do not have to go by rows, but come down the middle aisle if you would and you can return back out the outside and then we will... Sing a hymn once everyone is gone.
looking at that cross, seeing how it represents all of our sins and all of the people in this room, it's amazing to reflect at how much Jesus took on just for those of us here. But to know that Jesus took it on for the churches around the world, and not just those churches in existence today, but those who have been around for all time and have yet to be founded. He has taken all those sins on the cross for those who believe. And so while the cross is a horrifying thing and it is a terrible thing that our sins caused it, it is wonderful to us because it means our salvation. So let us sing about our wonderful cross that we have in Christ. Would you remain seated as we sing hymn 324, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Thank you. 